Gamarjoba, everyone. Before we get into today's show, I want to extend you an invitation to the fourth annual Intelligent Speech Conference. Intelligent Speech is a 100% online conference that connects independent, educational podcasters like myself with you, the fans, for a one-day event. I'll be speaking about the Georgian influence on the Holy Land. Tickets are on sale now, but if you buy before May 15th, you get 10 bucks off. You can get an additional 10% off if you use the code SAC. S-A-K. That's 18 bucks for a day with your favorite educational podcasters. Go to www.intelligentspeechconference.com to learn more and purchase your tickets. I'll see you on June 25th from 9.45 a.m. to 6.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All the information can be found in the episode transcription. And now, on to the show. and welcome to the History of Sakatvelo, Georgia. I'm your host, Roberto, and this is episode 17, The Road to Derbent. In today's episode, we'll be continuing on with Miriam III's life after the death of the last Parnavazid, Abishura. May she rest in peace. Things will change for Kartli as the Romans and Sassanids will go to war once more, this time led by the strong will of Diocletian and Galerius. The result of this war will have repercussions for Cartley and the rest of the Caucasus up to the present day. In our last episode, we covered the murder of the Armenian king, Hosrov II, by an associate of Shapur I. We then saw how that murder led to the Persian takeover of the Caucasus region, and how the Sassanids put one of their bastard children on the Kartveli throne. We last left Miriam III mourning for Abishura after her death. The Kartveli could not decide whether they should follow this member of the Holstroid dynasty, or if they should rebel and find anyone related to the last Parnavazid. At last, they acquiesced and returned the love that Miriam had given them during his reign, and proclaimed him as king, cementing himself and his dynasty's place on the throne. However, with one issue resolved, another arose. Mirian sat in his throne room, completing his daily duties. His head moved to the left, and he saw the empty seat of a queen. With Abishora gone, he was missing a vital component to his kingdom, a queen. And to exacerbate the problem, he had had no children with Abishura due to their age. Mirian was only fifteen, after all. So Mirian, like the diligent king that he was, set out to complete the monarch's most important duty, ensuring the continuation of the dynasty. Mirian began his search for a bride, looking far and wide, until he came upon a Greek woman from Pontus named Nana. Her familial origins are a source of confusion, being either the daughter of a Bosporan dynast named Aligothos, or the daughter of a Bosporan king named Theothorsis. They were promptly married in 292 AD, bringing in cheers and festivities across Kartli. 
The happy couple would need to be put on hold, though, as bad news from the northern campaign intruded into their lives. The Lecky tribe had broken away from their alliance with Cartley and switched over to the northern Caucasian tribal alliance. Mirin grew irate at the news of these backstabbers, ran to his armory, equipped himself, and headed to the northern frontier. He was going to battle the Lekis, Durzuks, and Didoians himself. Mirian was a storm on the battlefield. As soon as he met the tribal alliance in battle, they could not stand against him. He squashed them repeatedly on the battlefield, sending them running. The confrontations between the alliance and Cartley culminated at their bend. With Cartley controlling the Dariel Pass, there was only one way to enter the Caucasus, through the road to Derbent. The Alliance had plans of occupying this city to give themselves a base to raid into Caucasian Albania and Cartley, while completely bypassing the Kartvili defenses at the Dariel Gorge. Derbent did not go unaided, though. Mirian's network made him aware of incoming Alliance raids against the city, and the king repeatedly marched to Derbent. At times, he routed the enemy completely upon his arrival. Other times, his mere presence sent them running with their tails between their legs before the battle even started. Now, as per usual, the chroniclers start getting inaccurate and begin portraying Mirian and in turn, Cartley in a grandiose light. I will recount for the sake of your knowledge, but we really don't know much about the first 30 years of Mirian's reign. As we know, Cartley was a vassal state under the Sassanids. Due to some succession changes in Persia, the family intrigue that is recounted by the Chronicles may or may not have been possible. While Mirian grew comfy with the stability and prosperity of Cartley, things were thrown into turmoil in Persia. Only a year after his marriage to Nana, Mirian's father, Bahram II, passed away. The Shahanshah was replaced by Bahram III, Mirian's younger brother. This is where it gets weird, and I want to get the true facts straight. Bahram III ruled for four months and was then deposed and replaced by his uncle Narse, the king of Armenia. Narse ruled as king of Armenia from 271 to 293 AD. So the following story is probably not true. With the death of Bahram II, things were getting dicey in Persia. The next Shahanshah of the Sassanid Empire was set up to be Bahram III, but the chroniclers decided that Mirian would press his claim to the Sassanid throne as Bahram II's firstborn. This is also excluding the fact that as the son of a concubine, Mirian had no right to the throne, but that never stopped any other ruler from doing the same thing. I can somewhat empathize with Mirian here. Mirian, after all, had been in charge of Cartley for the last nine years, and as a successful king, he wanted a chance to prove that he was a worthy successor to his father. Bahram, whose age we absolutely do not know, was also given a viceroy status for a province in Persia, probably to help groom him for kingship. Things were getting rather tense between both kings, and the nobility of Persia had to step in. They absolutely did not want these two brothers fighting over the Sassanid throne and causing yet another civil war in the region, or worse yet, killing each other in the process. They asked for them to meet in person and voice their complaints in a civil manner. Mirian spoke first, as the elder sibling. 
he passionately voiced to Baram that he was their father's firstborn, and under the laws of primogeniture, should be the one to inherit the Sassanid throne. Their father had shown his favoritism when he had given Mirian the kingdom of a foreign land, and the fact that he had risked his life more than once protecting the Caucasus and Persia from those pesky northern tribes. Therefore, the Sassanid throne belonged to Mirian by right. Baram sat there quietly, listening to his older brother. He let Mirian voice his concerns, quietly adding them to his own attack plan. In a calm voice, he agreed that Mirian is the firstborn, but was born from a concubine, rendering him a bastard. Mirian was granted more than most bastards would be given. He, Baram, was born from an Indian princess who had become the legal wife of Baram II and Queen of the Persians. Baram II's will even stated that the Persian throne was meant to transfer over to Baram III. The room was left in awe at Baram's retort, and they secluded themselves to make their decision. One can only imagine the tension at the table as these siblings looked at each other, shooting daggers from their eyes, the bloodlust swelling up inside them. The nobility emerged from their meeting and announced that they ruled in favor of Baram. Mirian stood up in anger, but they told him to calm down as they weren't done answering. While Baram would continue as the Shahanshah, Mirian would be given land to help with his feelings of loss. Mirian was granted several different nations by the nobles, including Armenia. The list was longer, but since this episode is only recounted in the Chronicles, and its authenticity is highly dubious, I'm not naming them all. If this were true, however, I can see why Narsa would have deposed Baram III in a few short months. During Mirian's trip to Persia to fight for his claim on the throne, the Assetians were up to their usual tactics. The Assetian tribes rallied behind two men named Perosh and Kaftia, and decided that with Mirian out of the area, it was time to enter Kartli and devastate it, like they had so many times before. Mirian heard the news, and since he was already sour at losing the Sassanid throne, he flew into a rage. He gathered his Kartveli troops, and with eyes red with bloodlust, stormed into Assetia and ravaged the area, even chasing the retreating Assetians further north into the steppe regions. With his bloodlust quenched, and the Assetians repelled for now, Mirian made his way back to Kartli, going through Dvaleti. Despite Mirian's ravaging of the northern Caucasus, the northern tribes were hardy and never seemed to be quelled. They continued their assaults on Derbent over the years, leading Mirian to take the road to Derbent time and time again in defense of the northern border of the Sassanid Empire, as was his duty. While Mirian is busy defending Derbent, let's pan on over to the Armenian border and see what has been happening there. Rome had finally come out of the crisis of the 3rd century, quite a few years ago, and attacked the Sassanid Empire while they were weak to regain their control over Armenia. With Diocletian in charge, things were looking spectacular for the Romans. Now, who is that we see fighting along with the Romans? Why, it's the son of the murdered Hosur of II, Tirdat. He had returned to fight with the Romans to reclaim his territory. And, as a Roman-raised Armenian, who better than Tirdat to be the new Roman vassal? 
Tirdat was an awe-inspiring force, and for his spectacular feats in the battlefield, Diocletian granted Tirdat the kingdom of Armenia. The Roman army marched into Armenia, and the Persians immediately slinked away. As we pan back to Metasheta, Mirian was returning to his palace and meeting with an envoy, flanked by his young sons Rev and Varaz Bakur. Mirian called for reinforcements for his relative Peroz, a Miranid from the land of Gugark, in order to take back his supposed lands. Peroz responded quickly and said he'd help on one condition the hand of Mirian's unnamed daughter in marriage. Mirian agreed to the conditions, and as his daughter's dowry, handed Peroz the lands he held in Persia and named him the Aristavi of them. With all the reinforcements in hand and accompanied by additional troops from Persia, Mirian marched to meet with Tirdat in battle. However, he was not the only one who was preparing for a final confrontation. Tirdat had also called for reinforcements from Rome. The Armenian Kartveli peace was shattered now, and the nations turned on each other like the rivals they are. Mirian, in classic Kartveli fashion, reinforced his fortresses and towns, all the while Tirdat rampaged through Kartli. Mirian waited for his reinforcements from Persia to arrive, while Tirdat enriched himself with more and more loot from his raids. Things changed for Tirdat once the Persians arrived, but he still stood no chance of vanquishing Mirian in battle. Mirian looked at his lands, the devastation the Armenians had wrought, and entered into a bloody rage. The Armenians harmed the lands of the Georgians he had so come to love over the last few years, and it was time for the favor to be repaid. Mirian ravaged the Armenian lands, and for the remainder of this Roman Sassanid War of 297, and after, would continue to oppose Tirdat. No one else among the Persians could withstand his fighting spirit. And, as a small tangent, the chroniclers disagree with this and instead claim that Moses of Korenazi, the author of Armenia's Chronicles, reported that Tirdat defeated all his adversaries and gained great fame. If you thought the chroniclers couldn't get any weirder, it mentions that in this exact war, the Persians and the Kartveli managed to put pressure on Emperor Constantine, ravage Greece, and in the process, caused Constantine to look to the sky and pray to Christ to defeat the Persians. Seeing how we're still in 297 to 298 AD, and this event probably occurred around 312 AD against other Romans under the command of Maxentius, we have a serious anachronism and the chroniclers trying to give the Kartveli credit for having a hand in converting Constantine. Anyway, back to Diocletian, since that who is actually ruling. With Diocletian's defeat of the Persian and Kartveli forces, both kings fled the field and returned to their realms. Mirian reinforces towns and fortresses as well as he could, but the Roman onslaught had killed a majority of his Kartveli and Persian nobles. He sat in fear on his throne, shaking as he feared banishment from his kingdom. Taking the initiative, he sent envoys to the Romans, suing for peace. In exchange for keeping his throne, he would forsake his family in Persia and take on Rome as his client. Diocletian approved of the peace deal, as this gave him a chance to expand the buffer zone between Persia and Rome. In the process, Diocletian took Mirian's son Varaz Bakur as hostage for a little insurance. Things had not yet reached their conclusion, though. 
Diocletian called for peace between Armenia and Kartli as their old rivalry had flared up despite the end of the war. To ensure peace between the two nations, Tirdat was made to marry off his daughter, Salome, to Miriam's son, Rev. Diocletian then set the borders between his two clients, Fertirdat, the lands on which the rivers flowed south and merged with the Araxis River, for Mirian, the lands on which the river flowed north and merged with the Mitkavadi River. With the Treaty of Nisibis now in hand, the next 40 years became a time of peace between Rome and Persia. The Romans made themselves a suzerain over both Kartli and Armenia. Diocletian handed Tirdat and Mirian symbols which made public their recognition of Rome. Even under Roman control, the Sassanids made their mark upon Kartli. During Mirian's reign, many Middle Persian terms entered the Georgian language. These tell us a lot about Iberian society in the late 3rd century, so let's go through some of them. We start with Aznauri. I've mentioned this one quite a few times. Aznauri means freeman, patrician, or member of the gentry, and comes from the Iranian root word ara, which means of good birth. The term rochiki comes from the Persian roch, which means day, and was a day's ration for slaves in Kartli. The final word is kharki, which comes from the Persian kharag, which means tax or tribute. Throughout the kingdom, impressive fortifications and irrigation canals were built and continuously enlarged by the kings of Kartli, which required intense slave labor. With peace between Armenia and Kartli now in hand, Mirian had to give Rev and Salome some responsibility now that they were married. He gave Rev the land of Ujarma, which was built by Ashbagur, Mirian's predecessor. Let us go into the city of Metasheta and zoom in on a pair of women talking in whispers. One of them mentions that their child is sick, and the remedies they've used and sacrifices to their gods that they have made have not helped the child heal. The other one mentions that away from the city, a slave woman was performing healing miracles without the aid of medicine, and was only using the light of her lord to perform these miracles. To see images and bibliography related to today's episode, please go to our website and check them out under the episode's page. To support us, feel free to look us up on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as The History of Sacredville, Georgia, on Twitter at History underscore Georgia, on our website at historyofsacredvelo.com, or on our email at thehistoryofsacredvelogeorgia at gmail.com. Sacredvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. To help this podcast continue, please feel free to donate to the podcast via Coffee or PayPal. The links are in the episode transcription and on our website. Our Amazon wish list is also available if you'd like to purchase a book for us. The best way to help us is via review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast host as it goes a long way with getting the word out about the show and helping us reach new people to learn about Georgia. Madlaba da Nakfamdis, and thank you for listening to The History of Sacredvelo, Georgia. See you next time.